0: morning again. So a couple things. We sang a Christmas song. That's about the... I thought we'd start thinking about little angels. It had little angels in there. So we're going to be talking about angels today. I want to point out another thing. I think... uh, So you saw the new members, right? Uh, I think the average age of our membership now went down about 20 years with those. (laughs) So that seems like a good thing, at least for longevity. Uh, thank Christina. Christina read the entire first chapter of Hebrews, even though we've already looked at the first three verses. I wanted us to, to see the main theme of this chapter and really the entire letter of Hebrews. And that theme is, anyone? The superiority of Christ. The superiority of Christ. Two weeks ago, verses 1 and 2, we saw Christ's superiority to the prophets God spoke first through the prophets, and then in these last days, He spoke through His Son. And the main point of this is that is that Christ is superior to the prophets because He not only fulfilled what the prophets spoke, but He is God's final comprehensive revelation. And then last week, in verses 2, middle of 2 to 3, we saw the sevenfold superiority of Christ. Christ is superior above over greatest of all because he is the heir of all things everything belongs to him he is the creator and sustainer of all things without christ nothing would exist he is the radiance of god's glory and the exact imprint of his nature christ is fully god he purifies sin he is the one and only savior and he is the final perfect high priest and greatest king So that sort of summarizes the superiority of Christ found in the first three verses of Hebrews. Now today, we're covering a whole 11 verses. How is this possible? Well, because they all sort of focus on the same concept. The author of Hebrews is not finished proclaiming Christ's superiority even though he's done a fantabulous job. You know, I looked at that, that is an actual word. I thought I was making up a word. Fantabulous is a word. He's done a fantabulous job in these first three verses. He continues in verses 4 through 14, making a special effort to show Christ's superiority to angels. And we'll talk about why he does that shortly. But first, we, we, we need to get an understanding of angels. And that isn't always easy, because historically, we've been given a lot of misinformation. In the preface to his book, The Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis points out the progressively distorted picture of angels in religious art. He writes, Fra Angelico's angels carry in their face and gesture the peace and authority of heaven. Later come the chubby infantile nudes of Raphael. Finally, the soft, slim, girlish angels of 19th century art, shaped so feminine that they avoid being voluptuous only by their insipidity. Insipidity? You guys know, they're insipidous. (laughs) They are a pernicious symbol. Lewis really didn't like them. Just let's get that across. In Scripture, the visitation of an angel is always alarming. It has, to, it has to begin by saying, fear not. The Victorian angel looks as if they were going to say, they're there. Angelic mis- misinformation is also found in our modern entertainment. One common but erroneous theme is that we have within us, uh, on our shoulders, both an angel and a devil. Name the movie. Come on. Caitlin knew it up the emperor's new groove. Anyway, it's an okay movie. And then there's the classic movie, It's a Wonderful Life. Even though it's my favorite Christmas movie, it fails miserably in its portrayal of angels. Clarence in his nightgown there. Uh, George Bailey's guardian angel is not only a bumbling goofus trying to earn his wings, but he's also a former human, which says, when you die, you become an angel. Now, these are just a few examples of the wrong ideas uh, we have about angels. How do I know they're wrong? Because the Bible paints a much different picture. For example... When Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up in the temple, he also saw above the Lord stood seraphim, a type of angel, each having six wings, and two he cover, with two they covered their face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew, and one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Sorry, no picture there. I actually think it's, a, it's good that the Bible is not illustrated However with the with words uh, scripture paints a good picture of what or who angels really are in fact angels are mentioned over a hundred times in the New Testament I'm mean, excuse me the Old Testament and more than 160 in the New Testament so let me turn from this misinformation to eight uh, I'm going to give eight biblical facts about angels these certainly aren't all the Bible says about angels but this should give us some good footings, a good foundation for understanding what we find in Hebrews. I'm going to go quickly through these facts, uh, looking at only a few verses, but I've included in your notes. If you have notes there, you don't have to do any fill-ins. I just gave it to you uh, with a lot of references there for each of these points. So first thing about angels, angels were created by God. God created angels as angels. They are not dead humans. Scripture doesn't specifically tell us when God created them, but Colossians tells us that God, or Christ, created all things in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, which includes angels. Second, angels exist in vast numbers. In Revelation, they're described as numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. Third, they can be invisible. For example, in Numbers chapter 22 The Lord had to, if you remember the story, Balaam and his donkey, uh, had to open Balaam's eyes so he could see the angel blocking his way. Fourth, angels appear in various forms. They can have a human-like appearance and are often mistaken for men. We see this in their encounter with Abraham in Genesis 18 and their appearance to the women at Jesus' tomb in the Gospels. They can also appear shining with glorious light. This is what the shepherds saw when the angels announced Jesus' birth. And as we read in Isaiah, they can appear in fabulous, as fabulous winged creatures. Fifth, angels worship God. We'll touch on this later, but we saw it in Isaiah where the seraphim cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Sixth, Angels are God's messengers. You could say that this was their main function. The Hebrew word for angel is malak, and the Greek angelos, where we get our word angel, so we're getting our word straight from the Greek, both uh, mean, the Hebrew and the Greek, messenger. They are messengers of God. Angels revealed the future to Daniel and to the apostle John. And the angel Gabriel announced the births of both John the Baptist and Jesus. Angels seven, angels minister to believers. We'll touch on this later as well, but, but just uh, Psalm 34, seven says, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. And finally, angels will be God's agents at the end of the age. They will call forth the elect with a loud trumpet from, four, from the four winds. They will then separate the wheat from the chaff. They will open seals, blow trumpets and pour out bowls of wrath and judgment, and they will also execute God's judgment against Satan and his servants. So those are just some of the things the Bible tells us about angels. They are clearly amazing, glorious, powerful creatures, but despite all their greatness and power, and this is the point of our passage, they are in every way inferior to Jesus Christ. And I think we as Bible-believing, I see some nodding heads, Bible-believing evangelicals, we get that, right? Angels are great, but Christ is the greatest by far. And so why, uh, why talk about this? Why bother comparing Christ to angels? Well, remember, this letter is written to Jewish Christians who were under pressure from both the uh, imminent uh, threat of Roman persecution and, and rejection by their fellow Jews. And some were being tempted to compromise their faith and return to Judaism. Which, Judaism, unlike fledgling new Christianity, uh, was recognized as a legal religion in Rome. So it seems that one of their temptations was to simply agree that Jesus was an angel. Perhaps even the greatest angel, but not God. Judaism had a place for angels so they could be accepted into the synagogue and escape this awful persecution and rejection by their own people. And the thing that made this so tempting was uh, it didn't require an outright denial of Christ, but only a different affirmation of him as the greatest angel. And you might be thinking, well, this really doesn't This really isn't an issue for us today, except maybe for Jehovah Witnesses who believe that Jesus was created by Jehovah as the Archangel Michael. But as evangelical Bible-believing Christians, we all know Jesus wasn't, isn't, never will be an angel. So why not just skip these verses? Well, Well, because we don't skip anything. It's there for a reason. These things were written for us as well. Because even though we might not be tempted uh, to say that Christ is an angel, anybody tempted to do that? Okay, good, no hands. (laughs) We are at times tempted to make Christ less than he truly is. I'm not going to ask for any hands there. Because who Christ truly is, his supremacy, not over angels, but over all people, governments, religions, religious leaders, etc., and his uncompromising insistence that he is uh, the way, the truth, and the life uh, brings tension and even trouble into our lives. Couldn't we just say, without denying him, that he is a way, a truth, and sort of a life? People would like us so much more if we just change that article from the to a. Because if there's anything our current culture hates, it's someone who says, my way is the only way. Unless, of course, it's their way. My truth is the truth. I'm the only one who can give you eternal life. And that's what Jesus said. But when we proclaim his words, it rubs people the wrong way. So why not simply say that Jesus was great, even the very best man to ever live, and his teaching and his ethics were amazing, that his life and love and willingness to die for what he said are a great example for us to follow. I mean, that's pretty good, right? And if we say things like that about Jesus, but don't mention his exclusive claims, if we're willing to say, well, Jesus is my truth, but he doesn't really have to be your truth, the pressure will be off. So I hope you can see the temptation of the Hebrew Christians in their life-threatening context. We have these temptations, and at least so far, our lives aren't being threatened, to make a simple emphasis change on the person of Christ from son to angel. Could be spared a lot of suffering if you just do that. But the writer of Hebrews is determined that his fellow Jewish Christians be encouraged to hold fast to the truth of Christ's superiority, not falling to the temptation to say he was a great angel. So he gives a series of Old Testament texts from the Septuagint. Uh, The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So the Old Testament mainly written in Hebrew, a little Aramaic, but the Septuagint is the Greek translation, and that was available in, in the day that Hebrews was written. So there's that's what he's quoting from. These texts powerfully demonstrate the superiority of Christ over angels. And I pray that as we examine God's Word today, we too will be encouraged and motivated to hold fast in our lives to the supremacy of Christ. Over not only angels, but over any current cultural pressure to make Christ less than he truly is. So let's turn to our text uh, where we find five ways Christ is superior to angels. First way, Christ has a superior name. Beginning in verse 4, we read, "...having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs." For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. According to Jewish thought, a person's name revealed or spoke of his essential nature. That's why changes of names. Abraham was changed from uh, Abram, was changed to Abraham. Abraham. Abram meant... Oh, God. Anyway... Abraham means a father of a great multitude, and so uh, God gives him this name, and it speaks not just of his name, but of his nature. Now, these verses, uh, as we read them, maybe some of you saw this, sort of give the impression that the name Son was bestowed upon Jesus at a specific point in time, having become As much superior to angels as the name he has inherited. Or, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So, when did uh, Jesus become superior to angels? Wasn't Jesus always superior to angels? And when did he inherit the name son? Wasn't Jesus always the son, the son of God? And the answer is yes, he was. And a little no, a little no. In his eternal divinity, Jesus has always been and will always be superior to angels. And he has always been and will always be the Son, the second person of the Trinity. Jesus never stopped being divine, so he never stopped being the Son. But at a specific point in time, we refer to it uh, theologically, the incarnation, his coming into the world Paul says in Philippians, Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Jesus emptied himself, and he took the form of a servant. He became, he was born as a man, a 100% real man. And in so doing, he, and this is a mystery, he mysteriously set aside, not his divinity, always remained divine, but his divine rights. So you might say, as a man, for a time, Jesus was not superior to angels, and he set aside his rights as a son. In fact, Hebrews 2.7, this is confirmed for us. Speaking of Christ, quoting Psalm 8, he reads, you made him for a little while lower than the angels. There was a time when Jesus, a servant, a man, was a little lower than the angels. But that was a little while, I would say about 33 years out of eternity. It began at Christ's incarnation, and it ended upon his resurrection. In fact, Acts chapter 13 in Acts chapter 13 Paul specifically proclaims that the resurrection fulfilled the prophecy of Psalm chapter 2 verse 7 which is quoted in Hebrews 1:5. Follow along here. It should be clear. Let's read Acts 13:32-33. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. So, when Jesus was raised, this was fulfilled. What, what is this? As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Which we just read in Hebrews 1.5. When Christ, who lived a sinless life, gave himself as a sacrifice for our sins, and rose from the dead... He defeated sin and death. He fulfilled the prophecy of Psalm 2. When God declared, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So Hebrews uh, chapter 1 verses 4 and 5 is speaking of the exaltation of Christ's human nature. When his human nature is brought in line, and I'm using words here I'm not totally comfortable with, but they're all I got when his human nature is brought in line with his divine nature, and he inherits for all eternity the name Son. Jesus' name, his nature, both human and divine, divine is as the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. So that's stuff. And maybe you didn't care about it. You were all, okay, Jesus is the Son. But I just had to go there because it seemed like It happened at a point in time, and I needed us to understand what that meant. So so Jesus is the Son, the nature of the Son. He's God, the Son, and this is not the case with angels, or anyone, or anything else for that matter. No angel was ever called Son. Though sometimes, like people who trust in Christ, angels are referred to as sons of God, like we are sons, daughters, children of God. But no angel or no human except Christ has ever or will ever have the nature of the Son of God, the only begotten of the Father. And Hebrews shows this through two Old Testament quotations. The first, I mentioned, Psalm 7-2, quoted in verse 5, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my Son, today I have begotten you? Psalm 2 was already known as a messianic psalm. The Jews believed it would be fulfilled in the future, at a future day, by a descendant of David who would be crowned king. And Jesus was that descendant of David, the son begotten by God. No angel, no other person has ever or will ever share that name or that nature. Hebrews also adds to this sonship argument. Uh, with a second quotation, taken from 2 Samuel 7.14. At the end of verse 5, we read, or again, so following along, implying to which of the angels did God ever say, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. This is also a quotation, 2 Samuel, from a well-known messianic passage, commonly called the Davidic Covenant. Here the prophet Nathan told David that after his death, his son would build a house for God and establish a royal throne that would endure forever. And even though David's son Solomon did build a a great temple, his kingdom, uh, like like all the kings in David's line, did not endure forever. In fact, their kingdoms, the north, there was a northern kingdom eventually and then a southern kingdom, they both fell to the Assyrians and the Babylonians way back when. Therefore, the, the later prophets looked forward to the greater Son of David, whose kingdom would endure forever. And that fulfillment came in Jesus. The angel Gabriels announced to Mary, "He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will be to him will, excuse me, will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end." So, Hebrews shows us uh, that by fulfilling these two Old Testament sonship prophecies, Jesus is superior to angels. He alone has the name, the nature, the Son of God, when all that can be said about the angels is that they are messengers. So, how could anyone ever think of demoting Christ to the position of a mere angel? And how dare we think of demoting him to anything less than the one and only true Son of God. So first, Christ has a superior name to the angels. He is the Son. And second, Christ has a superior worship. This is a little misleading because uh, the worship of Christ is not just superior worship. It is exclusive worship. Scripture is clear that angels are not to be worshipped. In Revelation chapter 22, the Apostle John was so overwhelmed with what the angel was revealing to him that he uh, wrongly fell down to worship. But the angel rightly said in Revelation 22, 9, You must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your, your brothers and the prophets, and with those who keep the words of the book, worship God. Scripture teaches that we are to worship God alone. The first two commandments, you shall have no other gods before me, and you shall make no idols, prohibit the worship of anyone or anything but God. And so the author of Hebrews shows Christ's superiority to angels by pointing to their worship of Him. Verse 6 of Hebrews 1, And again, when He brings the firstborn into the world, He says, let all God's angels worship Him. Here he quotes from the final verse of the Song of Moses. This is in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 43. Uh, The Jews considered these final lines of Moses' song, messianic, speaking of the Messiah, the Christ who was to come. Now, if you look Deuteronomy up in your ESV Bible, translated from Hebrew, it doesn't use the word angel. It says, uh, bow down to him, all gods. But in the Septuagint, the Greek Septuagint, also translated from the Hebrew, which the author of the Hebrews is using, it's translated, let all God's, well, it's translated into Greek and into the English, let all God's angels worship him. So apparently, uh, because Hebrews is inspired as well, that is at least included in the meaning. Angels are commanded to worship Christ, and they're rightly obeyed. We get a taste of this worship in Revelation chapter 5. This is a a glimpse of heaven. John writes, Then I looked, and I heard around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders, the voices of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing." And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. So the angels lead out in a chorus of worship to the Lamb of God. They worship God, the Son, Jesus Christ. They honor him above themselves, above all others. And this should say something to us as well. We must worship the Son. We must worship, honor Jesus Christ above all others, for He has no equal. For He alone is worthy. He alone was slain for our sins. He alone can save us. And we must lift Him up above all other peoples, ideas, cultures, governments, philosophies, religions, etc., He must be above all things in our lives. So second, Christ has a superior, really exclusive worship. And third, Christ has superior status. As we saw in the beginning, angels are messengers. They're servants of God. But the Son, the one we worship, is sovereign, sovereign. His status is above all. This is the point the author of Hebrews makes in verses 7 through 9. He begins by quoting Psalm 104 verse 4 regarding the angels being servants. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Angels do some spectacular things. They sometimes inhabit wind and fire. We see this at least once in the story of uh, the birth of Samson, recorded in Judges chapter 13. The angel of the Lord comes to Samson's barren wife, and he tells her of Samson's upcoming birth. And in the course of the story, she, along with her husband Manoah, make a burnt offering to the Lord. And in verse 20 of Judges 13, we read, And when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. So the angel of the Lord became part of that flame of fire. But notice, in verse 7 of Hebrews, it specifically says, He, or or God, makes His angels. Angels can do spectacular things, but only as servants of the Lord. On the other hand, Christ, the Son, is eternally sovereign. Quoting from Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7, Hebrews says, But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. The son has a throne, a scepter, and he's anointed by God. This speaks of his rule, his authority, his sovereignty. His throne, his rule is forever and ever. His scepter, his authority will be upright. He will rule a righteous kingdom forever and ever. His anointing with oil of gladness refers to the heavenly joy that is his as the sovereign king of kings, as Christ in Hebrew says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. This joy is the same joy of this anointing of gladness that Hebrew speaks. Jesus is the eternal King of kings and Lord of lords, and the angels are his servants. They may, at his command, take wondrous forms inhabiting wind and fire, but they're still servants. Christ, however, is the eternally enthroned, sceptered, anointed sovereign. Therefore, it's impossible to logically think of Christ and angels as peers, In fact, it's impossible to think of Christ and anyone as peers. Christ's status is above all, over all. He rules all, and therefore we must submit to Him. So third, Christ has a superior status to angels. And fourth, Christ has a superior existence. In verse 10 and 11 of Hebrews 1, the author quotes Psalm 102, verses 25 through 27. And you, O Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same and your years will have no end. You see what's being communicated? As a man outlives his clothes, as his garments wear out, how many of you have clothes from well, some of you from like 50 years ago might still have clothes. Oh, no. I don't. You know, the clothes wear out. I do have a shelf of clothes that are really old but hardly ever worn because I gained too much weight and I can't wear them. So I'm waiting to wear those again. But our clothes wear out, right? Our garments wear out. So Christ, in the same way, will outlive the earth and the heavens which He created. Yet he will remain eternally unchanged. Here the author doesn't give a specific stated contrast with angels. The implied contrast is that angels, because they're created, are temporal. They were at some point in time created. They may, like humans, exist for all eternity, but only by the power and the will of Christ. Their existence, like our existence, is dependent on Christ, even changeable by Christ. Whereas Christ, God alone is self-existent, unchanging, independent. To the suffering Jewish believers who found themselves on the wrong side of both Roman and Jewish culture, these words of Christ's eternal existence, His unchanging nature, must have given them a great comfort. To be reminded that heaven and earth will pass away, but Christ And all who are in him will remain. That must have brought them great encouragement. Similar encouragement is found in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And doesn't this speak to us as well? In a world that seems to be, I don't know how to say it, out of control, upside down. What's right is called wrong. What's wrong is called right. And we as Christians, when we seek to hold to the Word of God, seem to be moving farther and farther away from what our culture says is good and loving and kind. We're definitely on the wrong side of our godless culture. And therefore, we, like the Hebrew Christians, could be facing persecution for our faith. But be encouraged, for even if you're on the wrong side of culture, of society, of government, even your family and friends... If you remain steadfast in your faith, if you trust and obey Christ over all other things, then you are on the right side of eternity. You're on the right side of God, which is a good place to be. You're on the right side of Christ, whose existence is eternal and unchanging. And therefore, He will sustain you today and forevermore. So, We've seen, and I pray, been encouraged that Christ has a superior existence than the angels, forever, unchanging. Now we turn to the final proof of Christ's superiority in this, uh, to angels in this passage. Christ has a superior vocation, or job, if you will. This is similar to our third point. Christ has a sim- superior status. Christ's vocation, his job, if is to is to rule. He's sovereign. He's the ruler over all. Whereas the vocation of angels is to serve Christ. That Christ rules supreme is proven by a passage that's quoted more often in the New Testament than any other, 14 times. Jesus applied it to himself at his trial in Mark chapter 12, verse 36. It is uh, Psalm 110.1 which is quoted here in Hebrews one thirteen, one of the 14 times in the New Testament. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? So the, the answer is none, not one, no one. No angel has God said this to. He said it to Christ alone. In his commentary on this passage, uh, Kent Hughes writes, Christ's absolute rulership is dramatically seen here in that it was the custom for a defeated king to prostrate himself and kiss his conqueror's feet, and for the victor to put his feet on the captive's neck so that the captive became his footstool. We see an example of this in Joshua chapter 10. After Israel defeated uh, the five kings of the Amorites, in verse 24 we read, And when they brought those kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. Then they came near and put their feet on their necks. One day, Christ will have victory over all his enemies. He'll be seated at the right hand of the Father in the place of honor and authority And his enemies will bow to him, and he will put his feet, I don't know, literally, figuratively, I don't know. He will put his feet on their necks. This is a picture of his sovereign authority, the sovereign authority of the victor, the king of kings and the lord of lords. And not only will his enemies bow before him, but Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2, and I seem to quote this passage every week, but here we go again. Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him, Christ, the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the enemies of Christ, Satan, his demonic forces, and all who reject Christ will bow before Him and they will be His footstool. And all the angels... And all who trust in Christ will bow before Him as His servants. For the Son has an infinitely superior vocation as the sovereign ruler of all. In contrast, the angel's vocation is that of serving. We've mentioned that. Verse 14 makes it clear. Are they not all, 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 all the angels, ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? The vocation, the job of angels is clear. They're ministering spirits. They're servants sent out by God to help God's people, to minister to God's people. We see this a number of examples in Scripture. They shut the mouths of lions when Daniel was thrown into the den. They ministered to Jesus after his temptation in the wilderness. They delivered Peter from prison. They comforted Paul before he faced Caesar. And their ministry did not end with the apostles. These ministering spirits, these angels, are still, I believe, being sent out to serve for the sake of those who will inherit the gospel. In Billy Graham's book, Angels, he records this story. On a dark night about 100 years ago, probably 150 years ago now, a Scottish missionary couple found themselves surrounded by cannibals intent on taking their lives. That terror-filled night, they fell to their knees and prayed that God would protect them. Intermittent with their prayers, the missionaries heard the cries of the savages and expected them to come through the door at any moment. But as the sun began to rise, to their astonishment, they found that the natives were retreating into the forest. The couple's heart soared to God. It was a day of rejoicing. The missionaries bravely continued their work. A year later the chieftain of the tribe was converted. He inherited salvation. As the missionary spoke with him, he remembered the horror of that night. He asked the chieftain why he and his men had not killed them. The chieftain replied, who were those men who were there with you? The missionary answered, why there were no men with us. There there was just my wife and myself. The chieftain began to argue with him, saying, There were hundreds of tall men in shining garments with drawn swords circling about your house, so they could not, so we could not attack you. And the missionary was a legendary, John G. Patton of the New Hebrides. And this is one of the great missionary his- tales in missionary history. One of a kind, you might think, but if you look at Graham's book... Uh, You'll find similar accounts from missionaries throughout history. And I want us to notice that in this story and in others, the angels were invisible to the missionaries. And one of the things that says to me, at least, is that we don't know how many times God dispatches angels, ministering spirits, into our lives to protect us, to encourage us, to comfort us, to deliver us, or to minister to us. As Hebrews 13.2 says, Some have entertained angels unaware. What a privilege it must be for these angels to serve the Lord and to serve His people. But the point here is that their vocation of service, no matter how amazing and spectacular and even miraculous it seems to us, is inferior to the Son's vocation of ruling all things. So to the Jewish believers in the first century living in a pagan-slash-Jewish culture who were being tempted to say that Christ is an angel and escape persecution, and to the Christians in the 21st century living in a godless, truthless culture who are being tempted to say that Christ is less than He truly is, God's Word issues a clear call. Christ is superior to angels and all others, Because he has a superior name. He is the Son of God. A superior worship. All the angels worship him, and all creation will worship him. A superior status. He rules the universe, and he must rule our lives. A superior existence. He is eternal and unchangeable. We can look forward, look to him for our eternal security. He has a superior vocation. He is a sovereign king who commands the angels to minister to his people. And the message to the 1st and 21st century church is this. Christ is superior to everyone and everything. He's superior to any physical, emotional, or spiritual difficulty you're facing. He's superior to a culture that has rejected him and is headed to eternal destruction. He's superior to those who hate him and hate you for loving him. And he, with ministering spirits at his command, can see you through any hardship, difficulty, or persecution. Therefore, we must not fall to the temptation of demoting Christ in any way. We must instead lift him up in every way. We must trust him every day of our lives in every situation we face. And one final thing... We must, no matter the consequences in our culture, proclaim Christ's superiority. That He is the one and only way, truth, and life. Amen? Would you pray with me? Father God, thank You for Your Word. And again, thank You for Jesus Christ, for all He's done for us, for His rule over us. I pray that we would submit to that. Lord, I pray that You would just give us boldness and courage in our culture. That we wouldn't be tempted to say that Christ is anything but what your word says about him. The true only Son of God. The one way to enter heaven. The one way to have a relationship with you through his death and resurrection, Father. So, Commit that to your hands. And I pray you would encourage us and motivate us to stand firm in our faith. Our faith in the superior Christ. Amen. You will stand with us for a final closing song.